please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses 35 through 45 today. Uh, If you should follow along with a great story, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark 10. There's a new column in the New York Times called Overlooked No More. It came about because someone figured out that since the paper's beginning in 1851, most of the obituaries of notable people have all been white men. So in an effort to remember those who made a contribution yet were bypassed, they are writing obituaries each week of people who may have died long ago. So far, there have been pretty powerful stories of mostly women, which have never been brought to light. People such as Emily Warren Roebling, who oversaw construction of the Brooklyn Bridge when her husband fell ill. Without her, it doesn't happen. Belkis Aon, a Cuban printmaker whose art teaches the world about women having a voice. And Martha McKenna, a Belgian nurse in World War I, who was actually a spy. Now, most of us don't know this woman, but we praise Jesus for her every day. This is Melita Benz, who in frustration with having coffee grounds in her coffee pot all the time, grabbed a notebook of her son's, put it in the pot, and thus the coffee filter was born. Thank you, Melita, in Dresden, Germany. (laughs) We are living in a new day where long-held standards of only honoring those who fit into a certain mold are changing. The Times calls it expanding their lens. This woman, Ida Wells, took on racism in the Deep South in the late 1800s with her investigative reporting on lynching. A very risky endeavor for an African-American woman at that time. She was born into slavery, and that experience, that pain, led her to take on the stereotypes that often went with the killings of black men. Listen to what she said. Somebody must show that the Afro-American race is more sinned against than sinning, and it seems to have fallen upon me to do so. She named the victims. She told their story not wanting them to be forgotten. She was a target of such hatred that she eventually fled the South permanently after losing a court case before the Tennessee Supreme Court where she sued for being kicked off a train car that was reserved only for white women. What I have enjoyed about reading these obituaries is how most of them have been about just normal people living their lives, trying to survive, trying to invent something new, trying to step in and take over something when nobody is doing what needs to be done, not caring if anyone noticed. I think that that's the way most of us are, even when we have moments of pride or self-centeredness, even when we aspire to have something that is beyond our reach, maybe promoting ourselves in the process. That's what's happening in our scripture today. We have a story of two brothers whose obituary would read like the notable people that they were, common men who followed Jesus and became important leaders in the church, who experienced hardship for their faith. 
yet for all we appreciate about them, they were human. So today, Mark records an episode which could have happened to any of us, and how Jesus responds to them is the core of our lesson today. So Mark 10, 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or, the, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not to be so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, we ask that your spirit would please illuminate our hearts and our minds. Your word is alive. You are here. Thank you. Amen. In the verses right before what we just read, Jesus has again taken the 12 aside to tell them why they are going to Jerusalem. He told them that he would be handed over to the authorities and sentenced to die. He is quite specific in his language, telling them that he will be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. After three days, he tells them he will rise again. This is the third time he has told them this. Now, this time it's a bit strange because it is as if nobody hears him. Nobody says anything about it. As they continue on, the brothers come up to him with their request. And how they made the leap from Jesus talking about his brutal death to flanking him when he comes into his glory is not evident. Sometimes this might happen to us, right? And we say to the person, did you even hear what I just said? Did you hear me? That's what I want to say to the disciples. But Jesus just rolls with it. Maybe because he has bigger issues that he wants to deal with. We're going to look at three lessons that Jesus gives today, all based on him saying no. Sometimes God just says no. No, you can't have everything you want. No, you can't sit at my right and my left. And no, we are not going to be divided over this. At each no, we see how Jesus rejects the need humanity has for self-promotion and pride, showing them instead how Jesus expects them to act. 
So the first no comes in verses 35 and 36. James and John, who are brothers, come to Jesus and say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Oh, how many of you have heard this before? Maybe from our children or maybe from someone who's manipulative in our life. Just listen. Just hear me out. And we just brace ourselves, right, for what's going to happen, knowing we probably don't want to do it and we certainly don't want to deal with it. Remember that this is the same James and John who are part of Jesus's inner circle. Who did he take to the transfiguration? Who does he bring with him into the bedroom when he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead? Who does he ask to pray for him in the garden before his crucifixion? Peter, James, and John. So does this familiarity with him make them approach him more easily? Why do we feel more comfortable taking advantage of those that we know best? Imagine our prayer sounding like this. Lord, give me what I want now. Jesus, don't think about saying no. If you give me what I want, I'll change. I'll do what you want. Now, this is disrespectful to God on many levels, mostly because it keeps the focus on us instead of on his greatness. It centers us on what we want and not on knowing him, which should be the focal point of our prayers. It is treating him as an equal or a parent who has no boundaries. We are made to worship the Lord. We don't want to be takers in our relationship. We want to know him more. Jesus says, what can I do for you? Smart. He does not answer the question to simply agree. He has heard countless prayers. He knows what they want. Again, he's being so generous to them. So let's think about this. We know how God wants us to be persistent in prayer. But how is it that we approach his throne with humility of heart as well as boldness? While being respectful to honor him as is his due, what does that look like? What does that look like for you as you go and you enter into your hour of prayer, your five minutes of prayer, whatever it is for that moment? How do you approach the Lord? You see, it looks like relationship where we're fully participating with a God who is drawing us close, who is teaching us how to pray, who is giving us boundaries, who is convicting us, who is loving us. Meeting us in each interaction, it means coming by his grace. The second no from Jesus comes when they ask him to allow them to sit on his right and his left. He says no, because they need to see the bigger picture of what God is doing rather than their ambition. He says no, because they don't even understand what they're asking. They want to be with him in his glory But they don't even know what that looks like. They don't even know what that means. They don't know that before he's in his glory, before he's honored, there's going to be unbelievable suffering. And so he tries to explain that to them. He asks if they can drink the cup, if they can participate in the baptism. And they answer quickly as one, yes, Lord, we are able. Of course, we're in. Count on us. Yes. 
Although he has just outlined the pain that he's going to endure, the suffering he's going into, they don't connect that with what his glory is going to be. Remember, we've been talking through Mark that when God asks a question, when we see a question, we have to stop. And we have to think about that and wonder what it is that he's saying. We don't want to rush. We don't want to rush to answer based on what we want or based on what we want him to think we are, even though we aren't that. Do you follow that? Here they want fame and power. So they answer quickly, yes, Lord, we can do it. Again, Jesus is being kind to them. He tells them, you have no idea what you're asking See, the cup and the baptism are the reasons why he came. In the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for what it is that God gives to people. A king offers a cup to a guest, and the cup gets filled with what our life will be. In Psalm 23, we read, my cup overflows. And we're comforted by that picture, by having so much goodness that we can't even hold it all in. But we know that life is not just about goodness. Jesus is also indicating to him that in our cups, sometimes we drink of suffering and heartache and loss and death. Jesus absorbs the suffering of everyone, although he is innocent. He drinks the cup that is meant for us. And when we think about this particular request, we think about the thieves who literally were on his right and his left while he was being crucified. And one of them says to the other one, we're getting what we deserve. But Jesus has done nothing wrong. And we think about that picture juxtaposed to what the brothers were thinking being honored meant. They wanted fame, but they didn't understand the price that it cost. They wanted to rule, not to die. Baptism is to be submerged under the floodwaters of life. In a rather overwhelming way, it's to go through a terrible experience of being pulled under the deluge. And when we think about the sacrament of baptism, we understand that it's a symbol that when we go down, that when we come up, we are raised to new life. And the sin and the regret and the pain has been washed off of us. We rise with joy as our sins no longer cling to us. Resurrection will come for Jesus, but at a huge cost because he will be submerged under the hatred and under the murderous intent as he goes through the crucifixion for us. Jesus almost implies that if they can drink the cup and be baptized, that he will grant their request. And when they say, yeah, we can do it, he gives them a twist. He says, actually, you will suffer. You will drink the cup. You will uh, be baptized. Your fate is with mine. Because of the faith that you have in me. But I can't grant you the right or the left. Those spots are not for me to give. Jesus tells them no. Because this is not an appropriate request. There's little thought really for what God is doing. They're just thinking about themselves. They had a different vision of what the Lord was doing. And wanted to participate in something that wasn't going to happen. 
It's easy to look back and say, wow, those guys got it wrong. But then we think about us. We think about us who live by faith, who are waiting for Christ to come again. And the Lord wants to ask us, are we living by faith? Are we living with our own motivation of what that means and what that looks like? We have to align our views with him and follow him. The third note comes as a result of the reaction of the other disciples. You see how angry they are. And so then we think to ourselves, well, how do we hear this request of James and John? Do we hear it as prideful entitlement? Do we think that, wow, they're brave? That was a brave request. Do we think of it as embarrassing? You see, all of us have known people who have done this. We've had siblings who beat us to mom and dad. We had co-workers who climbed over us to get to the right people faster. We've had fellow students or athletes who made it a priority to ingratiate themselves to teachers and coaches for gain. We think about how we were beat out in life with something. We might carry a little bit of that residual. We may have done this ourselves and feel some shame as we read this. The disciples are mad, so Jesus gathers them together so they can talk. Jesus is saying no to the division that this would cause if this were allowed to continue. Because he is all about reconciliation with God and with others. And this situation cannot be uh, gotten out of hand. He needs to talk to them because the rest of the disciples getting mad shows that they're thinking about the kingdom in the same way that James and John are, which is somehow tied up with worldly structures in their minds. You see, they're afraid that James and John are going to get something that they're not going to get. None of us like feeling left out. None of us feel like we missed an opportunity. Darn it, I wish I would have gotten to Jesus first. When the twelve are circled around, Jesus gives them a strong talk about how they are to be distinct from those around them. To be in the kingdom is to be in God's family. To be in God's family, there are ways that we act and ways that we don't. This teaching is not optional. It is said in a way that indicates it is an imperative for them always. They must not act like the rulers they see in Rome who are arrogant and bullying and tyrannical. Instead, they are to be servants of all. Like Jesus himself, they must give up the need to have power, and the desire to be great. He is telling them to focus on giving to those that they're serving, not expecting to get from those that they serve, not what they can get out of being in charge. You see, then and now, people rise to authority and then use that position to overpower those who are beneath them. They coerce and intimidate so they can keep their dominance. And Jesus tells them, think about the rulers that you know. Do you want to be like that? There's another way. There's a hope for God's people to be different, to show the world how it is that we lead with integrity. You see, while some in the kingdom might have influence over others, their value and their worth is the same as everyone else. They've just been given a role, a responsibility. It's not a result of human greatness. It's because God has asked them to serve. 
The terrible irony here for us is that the disciples are angling to have the same kind of power that is ultimately going to kill Jesus. Unchecked power corrupts us, which is why all of us would be wise to heed the words of the Lord here. Jesus ruled in glory, and he could have arranged his earthly life any way he wanted, because true power and glory belonged to him, and what he chose to do with his life was to give it away. I'm glad that someone at the New York Times discovered these people who were overlooked. For so many years, the number of obituaries were limited to only those that society said were important. When we lift up those who have authority or those that we aspire to be, we forget about those who are forgotten, those who might need to be empowered, those who might be serving behind us. Thinking about how important we want to be makes us forget to lift up others who have made contributions, who are doing great work and also should be recognized. We need to expand our scope and our lens of who we can raise up. Dr. Martin Luther King has a powerful quote which speaks to this. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. Amen to that. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. In the places where we lead, we have to always check our motivation. Are we motivated by love or are we motivated by what we can get from other people? Are we motivated because we want others to think that we're great? Jesus served by dying. So what needs to die in us that we might be truly alive in him? Everybody wants to be noticed for something. None of us want to be overlooked. We want to be seen for the good that we do and the difference we make. We want to be in charge someplace, having our will become the reality that we and other people live into. Sometimes we just want to be famous. Can we say it? (laughs) But if any of this is a motivating force behind our actions, Jesus tells us no. It's not right. It is in submitting to his will that we reveal his greatness and will be honored for our obedience and love for him. Let's spend a few moments in prayer. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.